We're 19 lessons into the study of the book of Revelation, and we're only on chapter 9. Well, next week will be a nice break. The New Life for Girls will be here, so there'll be a nice break for us. But do you feel like you're learning anything? I've always hesitated about preaching on Revelation because it's just so many different things. But the Bible tells us that if we read it and we teach it, we'll be blessed. Revelation 1.3, God blesses the one who reads this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to it and obey what it says. For the time is coming when these things, or time is near when these things will happen. So I question, the question is, do you feel blessed? I do. I, mean, I can see God working. So let's have a real brief recap before we go on. The rapture happens in Revelation after chapter 3. Church is taken away. No Christians are here at that moment. The seven seals are open. We see the four riders that bring war, famine, disease, and death on one-fourth of the entire population of the world. We see the prayers of the martyrs and God unleashing earthquakes and falling meteors. Then God picks 144,000 Jews and seals them from harm so they can preach the gospel during the tribulation. The last seal is open, which begins the seven trumpets, and we started those. And those trumpets are hail and fire, and one-third of the earth was burned up. One-third of all the sea was turned to blood. One-third of all sea life and ships were destroyed. One-third of all fresh water was turned bitter and killed many more. A third of the moon, sun, and stars were darkened. Then God unleashed the demonic forces to torture humanity for five months, not killing anyone, but leaving people wanting to die. And all this is happening in the first half of the tribulation, first three and a half years. And now we came off where we left off last week. Chapter 9, verse 12 says, the first woe is past, and that was all the trumpets and the demonic forces. The other two woes are yet to come. And this is referring back to chapter 8, just after the judgments of the one-third of everything. Before God unleashes the demonic forces to torture humanity, that was the first woe. Revelation 8.13 says, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. So last week we had the first woe, the unleashing of the demonic forces to torture. And now we come to the second woe, which is verse 13. It says, The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. Now, when did we last hear about the golden altar? Back in Revelation 8.3, where the saints were praying, the martyred saints, it says, another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer in the prayers of, with, all the, with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So we had, this is the same altar that these angels or voices coming from. The martyrs were there, God heard their voices crying out for justice, same same altar. And we hear a very commanding voice in the next woe. In verse 14 it says, it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now these four angels, these are not God's angels, these are fallen angels, these are demonic angels. God's angels are never bound. And for God to say, release them, would indicate that they were bound at some point. So they're not, they're not God's angels, they're demonic angels. 
And each angel, each of these demonic angels is in charge of a portion of the vast army that's going to come upon the earth at this moment. And the river Euphrates is also, in the Old Testament, a symbol of God bringing judgment. It's always referred to when God brings judgment upon the nations. Isaiah 8, 5 says, Then the Lord spoke to me again and said, The people of Judah have rejected my gentle care and are rejoicing over what will happen to King Rezin and King Pekah. Therefore, the Lord will overwhelm them with a mighty flood from the river Euphrates, the king of Assyria, and all of his mighty armies. The river Euphrates was also the northernmost part of Israel's border. It was the very top. Assyria and Babylon were on the east of the river, and God was going to bring Assyria and Babylon across this river to invade Israel and Judah at the time. And now he's using that as a border from which the demonic forces are going to be unleashed upon the world. And verse 15 says, And the four angels who have been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, the locusts from last week, they weren't prohibited from killing anyone. They were to torture them for five months so badly that people wanted to die. Now, this army that is coming against the people of the earth, they are authorized to kill. Now, remember, we had a fourth of life already killed, right? Back in Revelation 6, 8, it says, I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So for all of you who didn't like math, you thought you're never going to use it again, you got to use it again. So if you have one-fourth of the earth already killed, right, and now they're going to kill one-third of what's left of that earth. How do we add this together? Anybody remember your math? What do you do with two different fractions with different denominators? You're making the same common denominator, right? Math 101. So you have one-fourth, which is actually three-twelfths, and you have one-third, which is four-twelfths. So you now have seven-twelfths of the earth being killed over half. And this is not counting the fourth that we're, the third we're already killed with the, the ship sinking and all that. So way over one half of the entire population of the world will be killed. And it says that these angels have been ready and waiting. They are just chomping at the bit for this to happen. They didn't know when it was going to happen, but they knew that it was going to happen, and they were ready. Now remember, it's, it's an angel of God that released the four demonic angels. So ultimately, who's in control of bringing judgment? God's in control of bringing judgment. He's using the demonic forces to do it. God's in control. We sang the song, you reign above it all. That means God is reigning. He is in control of everything that's happening on this planet. Nothing happens without God's approval. Nothing happens without God being knowing about it even before it happens. Ukraine, God knew. Gas prices, God knew. There's nothing that God doesn't know. God is in control. And if you think that God is not in control, remember the Bible says everything is under God's sovereign direction. We read a few weeks ago about how God directs all the things in nature. He directs the rivers. He directs the mountains. He directs everything. He directs the rising of the sun. So everything is in God's control. So these judgments are in God's control. 
Verse 16 says, the number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. Now, there's various interpretations of this verse. Some believe it's traditional troops, people mounted on actual horses, representing many end-time armies gathering together for battle. Others see it as, a literal, as literally demons riding these horse-like creatures. They're not actually horses. It was a horse-like creature. We'll see that in a moment. It, in other words, it's basically a spiritual battle with spiritual beings. Verse 17, describing the horses, it says, And in my vision I saw the horses and riders sitting on them. The riders wore armor, armor that was fiery red, sky blue, and yellow. The horses' heads were like that of the heads of lions and fire and smoke and burning sulfur billowed from their mouths. So these aren't the horses that we know. This is a spiritual, demonic, inspired beast, whatever it might be, that looks like a horse. And all the, the notes in this section are focused on the horses, not on the riders. They're not worried about the riders so much. They're worried about what the horses do. Whether it's a real manned army or spiritual army, the destruction that they're going to bring is real. Now, I believe it's a spiritual battle, just like we talked about last week. Nothing, you can't block them out. You can't lock them behind a door. You can't lock yourself behind a door. They're spiritual beings. They're going to find you where you are. The riders are wearing the colors that are similar to what would come from the horses. Fire, that's red. Smoke. Sulfur, yellow. Blue sky. It was symbolic of what the horses were going to bring on the earth. The locusts had a human face with lion's teeth. Now these have an entire lion's head, symbolizing that these are stronger than the locusts coming because locusts just had a human face with lion's teeth. These have a lion's head and lion's teeth, more destructive than the locusts were. And all attention now is focused on the horses, not on the riders. And these horses do not in any way resemble a traditional horse. Another indication it's a demonic battle rather than a physical war that's going on. Verse 18 says, one-third of all the people on earth were killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the burning sulfur that came from the mouths of the horses. Does this judgment sound a little familiar? Genesis 19, 24. Then the Lord rained down, burning, down fire and burning sulfur from the heavens on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jude chapter 7 or verse 7 says, And don't forget the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns which were filled with sexual immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. These cities were destroyed by fire and are a warning of the eternal fire that will punish all who are evil. In other words, if the people of today sin like the people of Sodom, they're going to receive the same judgment that Sodom received. And we're going to see later on that this is a, a big thing that God is judging at this particular time. And it seems that the horses are able to generate fire and smoke and sulfur on a consistent basis, which means they are able to keep producing it from within themselves. They don't, they don't bring it along with them. They're able to produce it within themselves. Another indication that man is not going to stop what these judgments are going to be. In the previous locust judgment, they brought tor torture. These are going to bring death. Whether you are burned up by fire, suffocated by smoke, or poisoned by sulfuric gases. And this is going to continue until another third of those that are left on the world's population are killed. 
And when all of this is said and done, over half of the population will be dead. My wife and I are watching, we watch the uh, disasters at sea, well that's over, now we're watching disasters in the air. Upbeat. But every time there's a major plane crash, you know, you lose two or 300 people and it's a huge thing. Well now you're gonna lose, well I, I did the math. As of 2021, there are 7.8 billion people in the world. We don't know how many are gonna make the rapture of that, but let's guess three billion, less than half. That's a generous guess because Jesus said in Matthew 7, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for many who choose that way, but the gateway to life is small and the road is narrow and only a few find it. So we're gonna guesstimate that say three billion people make the rapture. That leaves, and now seven-twelfths of the world is gone. That's 2.8 billion that would have been killed since the beginning of the tribulation. 2.8 billion. Again, using math that you never thought would, you would need. Verse 19 says, their power was in their mouth, but also in their tails, for their tails had heads like snakes with the power to injure people. Again, focusing on the horses, not on the riders. Horses not only had folks smoke, fire smoke and sulfur, they had the power of death in their tail. So either coming or going, these horses are gonna get you. And the tail with heads like snake is another indication going back to the Garden of Eden symbolizing the devil with the snake. And again, symbolizing demonic forces, not human forces. It means they can attack men from the front and from, from the rear. There will be no escape from this judgment. Now some, and I'm, as I said before, I'm no theologian, I'm no scholar on this. And some think this is the battle that we've been talking about recently, the battle in Ezekiel about Gog and Magog. But I believe that that battle there's two of, two of them. That's actually a human army that's gonna do that battle. And the first one takes place in the first three and a half years. But I believe this is a spiritual battle, not one of those ones talking about Gog and Magog. The Expositor's Bible commentary says this. The emphasis here is on their fully demonic character, utterly cruel and determined, showing no mercy to man, woman, or child. The demons might also be manifested in pestilence, epic diseases or other misfortunes. Imagine your worst case scenario and then multiply it by a thousand. If you've seen any images or pictures from say World War II of, of England, bombed out England, bombed out Berlin, imagine that everywhere. And if you've seen in especially World War II, all the mass graves that they had for the, for the Jews at that time. That was six million. Now we're talking 2.8 billion. There won't be enough people to bury them. There'll be dead bodies everywhere. Pestilence will come from that. Disease will come from that. They'll be everywhere. If you survive it, you're now living in that type of atmosphere. 
But verse 20, it says, but the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to turn from their evil deeds. We mentioned earlier that God is judging one third or one fourth at a time because he's trying to give people an opportunity to repent. He could have done it all one time and killed everybody at one moment, but he's giving people time to repent. God is judging their sins. He's trying to give them time to repent of them, and yet these judgments do not cause hard-hearted and defiant people to change their attitude toward God. How many of us know people that when bad things happen, they blame God or they get mad at God? rather than coming to God asking for help. That's what's going to happen. The NIV reads that verse by saying, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. Now, the rest of mankind sounds like there's no believers left at this, at this moment. So we, it appears we've hit the point in the tribulation that even 144,000 and other believers are gone. They most likely have been martyred, but it doesn't say that, so we can't really be definitive on that timeline. Revelation 14 tells of the 144,000 standing in heaven, so we know that at some point in this time they, they die. Verse 20 says in the NIV, the rest of mankind. So we assume from that that everybody else who is living is not a believer. Another evidence that the church is raptured before all this happens. However, if you have not heard the gospel, we've said this before, if you've not heard the gospel and you wind up in the tribulation, you have an opportunity to get saved. But during that time, you will be martyred as a believer. However, if you've heard the gospel and you reject it now, you won't get saved during the tribulation. I think I've mentioned that a number of weeks, just so you understand. The verse says, Work of their hands. They did not repent of the work of their hands. What's the work of their hands? Well, things that we make that we worship. What do we worship? What do we have that we worship? What do we have in life other than the one true God that we worship? Now, we may not say we worship them, but our actions may indicate that we do. Do we worship our careers, our jobs? Our homes, our businesses? Do we worship our health? Do we worship our appearance? Do we worship our families? What in your life is more important than God? In other words, if God asked you to give it up, would you give it up? He asked Abraham, give up your son. He was willing to do it. Now, God's not gonna ask you to kill anybody but God may ask you to put whatever you have on that altar and give it up. And that means doing things for God that others may not like you doing. Do you worship what people think about you? Your reputation? Maybe you do have physical idols. What do we have in our life that we have put above God? And it appears that even though these people see suffering and death around them and they see they've got to be losing things, they've got to be losing their possessions, they still try to hold on to them. 
more than they want God in their lives. Think about what you had 20 years ago, if you're old enough to have 20 years behind you. What do you still have from 20 years ago? Probably not much. All the things you thought were important and valuable all those years ago are gone. When I was in high school, man, the most important thing to me were my friends. And other than maybe a few communications with them, I don't see them much now. The cars I had, well, they're all in the junk pile now. Everything we think is important to us will one day be gone. Your kids grow up and move out and they move on. If you worship your family, they're gonna be gone, not physically gone, but they're not gonna be in your house anymore. They're gonna be doing their own thing. We need to be sure that everything in our lives is second to what God wants. And if God asks us to give it up, would we do it? Verse 20 says, they still did not stop worshiping demons. And that means not only physical things, but maybe we have things in our life that we consider God. I said, false gods are the top of God's hate list. False gods are also a part of work of their hands. This would encompass humanistic philosophy, oriental teachings, Satanism, and other occult religions and practices. People create these. I always wondered why are there, why are there cults and why are there other things like this? Well, because God put it in us that we have a desire to worship something. We have something in our life that we worship. If you're an atheist, you worship yourself. If you're not, you worship something else. A cult, whatever it might be, you worship something. And at that point, people worship these things. They think those things are above God. And God says he hates those things. They will still not worship, they did not stop worshiping demons. When people exalt these teachings and practices at the end of it all, who's the author of all of it? Satan, right? And even if he's not being worshiped, he is being worshiped. If you worship Buddha, you're worshiping Satan. If you're going to a, a medium or you're having your palms read or tarot cards, you're, you're worshiping Satan. If you're worshiping at the altar of a Hindu god, you're worshiping Satan. You're worshiping Confucius, Muhammad, or Allah. You're worshiping the devil. Satan has always wanted worship. That's why he got kicked out. Isaiah 14, talking about the devil, he says, How have you fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning? He was the brightest star in heaven. You've been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Since the very beginning, he has wanted worship. And you know, by not worshiping God, you automatically, whether you know it or not, 
you're giving credence to the devil. Matthew, 8, Matthew 4, verse 8 says, Next the devil took him to a peak of a very high mountain and showed him the nations of the world and all their glory. I will give it all to you, the devil said, if you will only kneel down and worship me. And it doesn't have to be Satan worship either. It could be anything other than God, and Satan's happy with that. During the tribulation, there's going to be a lot of, just like it is now, a lot of religion going on. But it's all going to be a false religion. They're all going to be crying out for these gods to help them, just like Israel did when they were backslidden. They were crying out to all their gods to save them, and nothing happened. But they're not going to turn to Christ. Verse 20 says, They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. In their suffering, they're going to turn to these wooden statues and expect them to help. If you read through the Old Testament, when Israel was kind of backslidden, what would they do? They would try to, they would take the ark with them into battle thinking that the ark was a good luck charm. And they got beat because it's not the ark. The people were worshiping the ark. It's not the ark. And it's not even things that God gives us. God wants us to worship him. And everything else, every blessing we have, and they're not good luck charms. We worship God. But people are gonna turn to things like that in order to help. If you've seen any Dracula movies, what do they do? They hold up a cross. Guess what? <laughs> Ain't gonna work. People are gonna worship gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. They're just inanimate objects. God says, Ten Commandments, don't make an image of me. Don't make a graven image of me because you have no idea what I look like, for one, and what's going to happen is you're going to worship that image. They did that with a bronze snake. They raised the bronze snake and God healed them. They looked at it, but then they started worshiping the bronze snake. No different than today. Romans 1 says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. They did a survey. They walked and asked people, do you believe in God? And if they said yes, what do you think God's like? And invariably, they would tell them what they thought God would be like according to them. Because everything their God liked is something that they liked. Well, my God would be okay with this and with this and with this and with this. And my God wouldn't like that or the other. Well, that's exactly what they thought. They're, they're creating, and it says here, they made up foolish ideas of what God was like. People will create things in their mind that they think this is how God is rather than reading the Bible or understanding what God's like and they just think up their own God. And that's exactly what's gonna happen in the end times as well. It says the result was that their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they become utter fools instead. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people or birds and animals and snakes. So God let them go ahead and do whatever, their shameful, whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. 
Instead of believing what they knew was true about God, they deliberately chose to believe lies. So they worshiped the things that God made and not the creator himself who is to be forever praised. Something that, some think that worshiping idols is a, is a neutral thing. It doesn't really hurt or maybe it, you know, if it just hurts me but nobody else. It's my choice, I can worship if not. That's not true. Not only does it keep you from God, it means you are now interacting and cooperating with demonic forces. When you open a Ouija board, when you participate in a seance or anything like that, you are opening the doors to demonic activity. When, when King Saul was trying to bring up or yeah, he's trying to bring up Samuel from the dead. Samuel had died. Saul was all nervous about what was going on, so he wanted to talk to Samuel. Samuel's dead, so he goes to a witch and says, I need to talk to a dead guy. And the witch was like, yeah, yeah okay, no problem. What did it say? First, it said it scared her because she had never, it never happened that way before. She actually was talking to someone who's dead. When people do that, they're not talking to your relatives. How many know that? <laughs> All these TV shows, they talk to people. They don't talk to your relatives. They talk to demonic forces who may know things. And so when this, when this witch sees Samuel, she had never seen a person who actually died. Everything she did was just made up or whatever, and it shocked her. And what did Samuel say? He rebuked Saul, and that's why Saul died, because he consulted a witch. When you talk to... When you do these things and you try to enter into that, that realm, you are entering into the demonic forces and you're opening yourself up to demons working in your life. And God says in Romans, he says, he's gonna let you do it. He's gonna, it says, God let them go ahead and do whatever their shameful things their hearts desired. If you wanna do it, God's gonna let you do it. I think the King James says, he turned them over to a reprobate mind. In other words, he's going to let you do what you want to do. He doesn't want you to do it, but he's going to let you do it. What does John say about that? In verse 21, it says, Nor do they repent of their murders, their magic arts, and their sexual immorality or thefts. Well, it seems like murders are number one in the region right now. There are movies out that I... I, I fail to understand why they make these movies to begin with, but um, The Purge, I think, is the name of them. Hope nobody here's ever seen those movies. The purge is basically what from what I understand is there's no law for like a day. And you can do whatever you want to do. Any illegal activity you can do for a day, there's no consequence for. Well, A, that's a ridiculous movie for one. But that's what's going to happen during this time. Because if if more than half the world's gone, I can imagine there's not a whole lot of law an order taking place. And so people are gonna be doing whatever their hearts desire to do. And it says they did not repent first of their murders. So people can be murdering. They're not gonna repent of their magic art. Well, that's magic art. NIV calls it magic art. New Living Translation calls it witchcraft. New King James calls it sorceries. And all these words, the Greek word for that is pharmakia which means that these magic arts are going to include the use of drugs along with the occult. 
In other words, you need an altered state of, state of consciousness. In other words, you're hallucinating, and that's gonna produce in you a false sense of well-being and security, isn't that right? People wanna get high to avoid the pain that's going on around them. They get high, they drink, all these things to avoid the pain, and God says they didn't give it up. Magic arts is associated with the occult, Satan worship, witchcraft, incantations, and communicating with the dead. People are gonna be trying all these things to find out how to get out of the situation they're in. The world's blowing up around me. I need to talk to a witch. I need to, talk, I need to start making some spells. I need to start talking to people who are dead. They're gonna try all these things to get out of what God's allowing to happen rather than simply coming to God. A lot of times these practices will involve the use of drugs. And lastly, the word thefts. Kind of seems kind of out of place in that group of things, but what happens today when your addictions take a hold of you? How do you feed those addictions? You steal, right? And so if there's no law and order and there's murder and all that going on, we see it now. In cities, they're not prosecuting people for shoplifting and busting cases and stuff. And they're not repenting of it, the Bible says. They're not, they're not quitting it. They will need to have money to overcome all their addictions. And so they're gonna steal. And they'll be so enslaved by their sin that they're gonna do whatever it takes to continue. Now, we come to an intermission. Just like the intermission between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there's a break, we now have a break between the sixth and seventh trumpet. Now that's gonna be not next week, but the week after that. But I wanna, I wanna end with this. Hopefully I'm gonna say that one time. Maybe not, I can't make that promise. God has been moving in our services. How many sense God moving in the services, right? How many have had answered prayer in your life? I've seen it, I continue to see it. Well, we had an answer to that prayer, at least my prayer, and I think some of yours, last week or so. We now have a live worship team, live worship band, and I'm gonna ask them to come up now. And they're going to, and they're practicing on it. They've been practicing a lot, and it sounds really good. And I'm gonna ask them to close with a song. Now, you may think, that's an answer to prayer? And it's an answer to my prayer. And the reason I said that is because this. If God can answer a prayer for a live worship team, a live band, which in the grand scheme of things, is it really that big of a deal? It is. If God can do that, what are you trusting God to do for you? All these sermons on Revelation really don't involve us to the fact that we're not gonna be here for that. But until that time happens, we're here. And we wanna be able to receive everything that God has for us now. Don't forget the very beginning we said, God blesses those who reads the prophecy of the church and he blesses all who listen to it. And what? Obey what it says.
And I believe that God is honoring that promise to bless. I've got it. I've talked to people who are getting it. We simply have to lay hold of what God already has for us. Luke 18.1 says, One day Jesus told his disciples a story to illustrate their need for what? Constant prayer and to show them that they must never give up. Some of us have been praying for a specific need for what seems to be forever. What did Jesus say? Okay, you can quit now. No, it says never give up. If he said never give up, that means an answer is coming, right? If, if there was no answer coming, why wouldn't Jesus say, okay, it's time to give up? But I believe the answer is coming. Whatever it is you're praying for, whatever you're trusting God for, he's gonna bless you because we're listening to God's word. The Bible says it. I'm not making it up. The Bible says it. Before I let the team lead us in worship, I do want to embarrass Jen today. Because it's your birthday today, isn't it? And she's taking her birthday to lead us into God's presence. And I'm excited because three months ago, we didn't have this. We've been talking on Wednesday night about getting out of the boat. And Peter got out of the boat, took a risk to get out of the boat. And I think God's been speaking to you folks about getting out of the boat a little bit. God's working. Amen. Would you stand as we lead, get led into worship?
Lord, that you care about the little things as well as the big things. And if you can do a little thing, like providing instrument players, which is not that hard for you, how much more do you want to do in people's lives to bless them, answer our prayer, meet our needs? Father, there's so many people that we're praying for who don't know you. Your word tells us that you're long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Your will is that everyone be saved. And your word tells us not everyone will, but your will is that they be saved. And Father, we are praying for them right now in the name of Jesus, that you would speak to them before these horrible things happen on this world. I pray that you would bring them into a relationship with you. I pray that the Holy Spirit does what he needs to do in their life to get their attention. All of us experience that at some point. You had to get our attention. And Father, we are so glad that you did. And Lord, we know for those who are praying for who don't know you, the relationship we have with them might be impossible for us to lead them to Christ. Either they don't live around us or they don't want to hear us. But Father, the job of saving them is not ours. 
that job is yours. Your word tells us that nothing is too hard for God. So Father, we intercede for them, we pray for them that God, you would do what you need to do in their lives so they come to know you and experience the blessing that we have. And Father, we continue to pray for those in our church and our fellowship and our family and friends who need a touch physically from you. Lord, there's so many hurts and so many physical ailments going on, Father. We need you. And I pray that you would do miraculous things in our lives, in this church, and in order to bring glory to the name of Christ. So when people walk out, they will know that God has been in this place, that something miraculous has happened that they can't explain. And this community sees that God is moving in our midst. Father, we pray for families who may not be reconciled together for whatever reason. I pray that you would work in their lives as well. Your word tells us that you've given us the ministry of reconciliation. Our job is to reconcile people to Christ, but your job is to reconcile people to each other. So Lord, I pray that you'd work in the hearts and the minds of every family member present and accounted for here today, that you'd restore relationships, restore the love that families had at one time. Lord, I know that's a burden for a lot of us here today. And I pray that you would do that in their lives. And Father, we always want your presence to be felt every day. When we come into your presence, Lord, whether it's in our devotional life or in church, we want to know you're with us. And your word tells us that you're with us all the time. So Father, whether we feel it or not, whether we have emotion or not, the Bible says you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us. And it's in those difficult times when we don't feel you, we don't experience you, we don't have any emotion about it, that's the time when the truth of your word comes through. And we know that you're there, regardless of how we feel about it, we know you're there. Lord, I pray your blessings upon each one here this morning as we leave. God, I pray that you would raise them up and allow them to feel your strength every day. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, which is entirely possible, Lord, they don't have a relationship with you. They've never come to the point where they've said, Jesus, I believe that you died for me to forgive me of my sin. Then, Lord, I pray that this is the day that they do that. That their lives are turned inside out because of their relationship with you. Do your work in their lives, Father. Allow the Holy Spirit to draw them in and allow them to experience what most of us here have already experienced, the love and the joy of knowing the God of the universe through Jesus. Lord, I commit each person here to you in Jesus' name. Do great works, Lord, and let us hear testimonies about what you're doing because that builds up our faith as we hear you working in other people's lives. So Lord, I commit this church to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Next, win, or next set, uh, Sunday, New Life for Girls. Bring visitors, bring guests who need to hear that kind of stuff. It's awesome.